to this message from Valley Bible Fellowship. It is our sincere prayer that you're richly blessed through the ministry of the Word. For more information about VBF, visit our website at vbf.org. Good morning, Valley Bible Fellowship Eastside. Hello, hello. Hello to our Northwest Campus. Hello to Tehachapi Campus and to the rest of our Valley Bible Fellowship friends and family listening out there. Good morning. Uh, if you're new here, I'm Doug Lohman. I'm the campus pastor of Valley Vegas Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Home of your Las Vegas Raiders, okay? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to start a fight before you even get in the word. That's probably wasn't real smart of me. One of the most memorable family vacations that Vicky and I took was to Cooperstown, New York with our family. And you baseball people will recognize that city. That's the town where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. <clears throat> but we didn't go there primarily because of the Hall of Fame. We went there because my son uh, was in a Little League tournament, a 12-year-old tournament. And it was played at a place called Dreams Park. I got a picture of it to show you what it looked like. That, those are just four of the 12 fields that are there. Notice the beautiful mountains in the background, upstate New York, gorgeous country up there. Uh, the next picture shows you just the, uh, the number of people. There are thousands of parents and kids there. I think there were 100 teams from all over the country that comes in there. And it's so cool, they house the, uh, the boys in dorms there <clears throat> with chaperones, no, no parents there. And the kids get a chance to uh, trade pins from their home state with other kids in their home state, all 50 states. Just really a cool time there. <clears throat> now, we did get a chance to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame there in Cooperstown. And, oh, what a treat it was. In fact, I got a picture there of a, a wall of the plaques there. You see the plaques all over the wall. You see Babe Ruth's jersey. You see Willie Mays' glove. Uh, you see Ty Cobb's cleats, just all of the baseball stuff. And, of course, these plaques. Wait a second. Guys, can you bring that picture up a little bit bigger? Hey, that's me. I'm, I'm in the Hall of Fame? They don't notify you? They just put you up there? I had no idea. I guess I'm in the Hall of Fame. Well, hey. You got a Hall of Famer preaching to you today. You don't get in the Hall of Fame by having only 63 games in the major leagues, okay? I joke with you. That's not me. <clears throat> that is me, but I'm not in the Hall of Fame. I couldn't resist. There is a Hall of Faith in the 12th or 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and it lists some of the Old Testament saints, it's an incomplete list because the New Testament saints aren't there, but uh, this list has men and women who demonstrated great acts of faith, and they made that list. And I want to talk about some of these folks today. These folks are so different in their upbringing, so different in their backgrounds. They experienced different circumstances, but they all exhibited a unique faith in God that I believe can be inspiring to us and educational. 
as we take a look at, at the folks there on that list, but also some folks who did make the list, but I'm sure uh, would be in there if included New Testament uh, believers. Now, here's the first person that I want us to look at and look at their faith, and that is a lady by the name of Rahab. She actually is in that list there in Hebrews 11. I'm calling Rahab's faith the faith of the unlikely. Why is Rahab the faith the unlikely? Because she was a prostitute. I doubt many people could have imagined her actually making that list when she first uh, started off her life or later in life. But that, there she is. Now, why is she a member uh, of that? Well, we're going to go into that. By the way, uh, if you were ever to attend a service, uh, Valley Vegas Church in Las Vegas, uh, there's a good chance, and you wouldn't recognize who they are, but on any given Sunday, there's anywhere from two to ten ex-prostitutes sitting in our congregation that have come out of the sex industry and now are attending our church. Fantastic. So, so proud of that, that they feel comfortable to come to our church. Let me give you the setting of Joshua chapter 2 that led up to the story of Rahab. Israel, under the leadership of Joshua is right on the edge. All they have between them and the land that God promised them was the Jordan River and a town by the name of Jericho. So Joshua sent two spies into Jericho saying, hey, check it out. What kind of city are they? Is it a fortified city? Do they have a big army? Go check it out and come back before we step over there. See what kind of battle we're going to have in our hands here. So they do, and these spies end up in the house of Rahab. Now, I'm not going to make any commentary on how they got there, what they were doing there. That's between them and God. All I know is the story says that they're at Rahab's house. And word had got out to the king of Jericho that there were two spies from Israel checking out the land. So and they were at Rahab's house. So they sent people over there, and uh, Rahab hid these guys. In fact, we pick up the story in chapter uh, 2 of Joshua, verse 8. Now, before they laid down, she came up to them on the roof. She hid them under a, a, a flax uh, uh, branches there and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land they've melted before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters who all belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for years, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land <clears throat> that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And of course, if you know the story, <clears throat> she was told to tie a red ribbon uh, on her windowsill. And then when they came to defeat Jericho, they said, if anybody and everybody who's in your house is protected when we see the red ribbon, but if they're not in the house, uh, our blood's not on our heads. And, and her family, Rahab, was saved because of that. These spies, I imagine, had to be surprised that this prostitute had such a reverence for God. 
to be able to declare, man, we know that your God is the God of, of heaven above and on the earth below. Where did she learn this? <clears throat> Where did she hear this in such a pagan city? Well, I believe somebody came and gave testimony to her. Somebody who maybe witnessed these things firsthand. Somebody who was a relative of someone that, that witnessed these things and came back and told her and said, it's true, Rahab, it's true. The, the God of the Jews did this. And as a result of this testimony, she acknowledged that there's only one true God. <clears throat> Our testimony is powerful. And we should be open and ready to share it whenever God opens up doors. What is a testimony? Well, a testimony is the life that we live and the words that we speak. Again, a testimony is the life that we live and the words that we speak. And every single one of you sitting here today and listening online, you all have testimonies. Everybody has a testimony. Maybe not necessarily a, a you know, testimony of how you came to the Lord, but a testimony nonetheless of your life, your life with God. And, and that testimony is being watched by other people. That can be good or it can be bad. Conflicting words and a contrary lifestyle to the gospel, that's a bad testimony for the Lord. People who say one thing about God and yet live contrary to God and his ways, you know what that is called? That's called being hypocritical. That's a hypocrite. Someone who puts on a mask. They, they pretend to be one way, but they're actually another way. That is so harmful to the cause of the Lord. <clears throat> but a testimony that is shared with words and a lifestyle that match, that testify of God's ability to change lives and to help us in times of need, oh, what a powerful, powerful tool that is in God's hands. In 1985, uh, I started off in my baseball career in the major leagues and I got sent down to the minor leagues and uh, stayed there the rest of the season. Typically what happens at the end of a minor league season, if you started off in major leagues, they will call you back up to the major leagues to finish the last month of the season. That didn't happen to me. And I was so uh, discouraged, I was so disappointed. And my manager had to, and minor leagues had to break that news to me. And he said, Doug, I, I know you're disappointed. He goes, but Doug, I, I, want, I want to tell you something. I don't know if we'll ever be in the same team again. He says, after spending this season with you, he goes, I think I might need to give Christianity a second look. And that really softened the blow. That really softened the blow. I mean, I was disappointed, but the fact that he saw something in me that would make him want to reconsider Christianity, you know, that, that again, uh, was the silver lining uh, in the cloud. That's what a testimony can do. I had a pastor friend back in Colorado when Vicki and I were ministering back there. He had a very unique way of describing and a goal that he set before him on how to influence people for the Lord. He told me, he said, Doug, I put a numeric value on people according to their spirituality. For instance, if you're here today and you're an on-fire Christian man, you're, you're just living radical on fire, he would call you a 10. You're a number 10. But uh, if someone was here and they're basically just one foot out of hell and they're the Antichrist, uh, you would be a one, okay? He said, my goal is, is to, as I rub shoulders, as I influence, I spend time with them, I want to see if I can have God use me to help that four get to a five or to a six. And to have that one maybe at least get to a two, and he goes, that was my goal. I want to influence people. I want to move them closer to the Lord. And I said, well, that's kind of a cool way of, of looking at things. 
we understand only God can change hearts, but, but our testimony can really be used for that end. Now, here's the next person I'm going to look at in their faith. Let's take a look at Matthew. Matthew. I'm calling Matthew's faith the faith of the unworthy. The faith of the unworthy. <clears throat> we read about Matthew's call from the Lord to become a disciple in Mark chapter 2. Verse 14, and as he passed by Jesus, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew, another name for Levi, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. Here, here's the picture. Matthew, the tax collector. And I think I've shared before, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I think I've, I've explained this to you before. Tax collectors were Jewish men working for the Roman government. They would bid on, on uh, like, it'd be like Kern County, the tax collector for Kern County. The tax, they would go to the, the board of supervisors and say, hey, uh, I can collect, they'd bid for the job. I can collect 2% from the people on all goods uh, sold and, and bought here. And then the guy said, well, I can get 25 from the people. And Matthew obviously had the winning bid. Matthew said, I can get 3%. Okay, you're, you're a tax collector for this area. Now, the Romans knew what the amount was. Matthew knew what the amount was, but the people didn't. So what these tax collectors would do is they'd tell the people, hey, this year, new tax rate is going to be 3.5%. 3.5%. So the people pay 3.5%. Well, all Matthew owed to Roman government was 3%. So he would take that half percent right in his pocket. And you multiply that times a bunch of people, tax collectors were rich, but they were hated because they worked for the Romans, number one. Number two, they were ripoffs. And so here's Matthew, this tax collector, asked to join Jesus' ministry team. And you know that caused ripples among the rest of the uh, disciples. So he's having dinner with Matthew, with his tax collector buddies, and sinners. Who, who are the sinners being talked about here? These were the non-religious Jews, the Jews who didn't follow the Ten Commandments, the Jews who didn't follow the law of Moses. And you say, there were those people back in those days? Well, sure there were. In fact, in modern Israel today, the majority of the population of modern Israel are non-religious. They, they are not God-fearing people. They're, they're very secular people. So he's dining with them, for there were many, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Are we learning? Have you learned yet that Jesus is more doctor than preacher and the church is more hospital than cathedral? Have you got that down yet? If not, you need to. Because if you get that understanding in place, it won't shock you when you walk onto campus here. And when you hear somebody walking up, blurt out a cuss word. <gasps> I, we're at church. I can't believe somebody said that. Or you get in your car to, to walk in, and, and all of a sudden you got to get in the middle of a couple arguing out there. They're having a fight in the parking lot, and you got to referee it. Oh, my gosh, I thought everybody in church was, you know, spit shined and cleaned up and, you know, gargled with spiritual listerine before they got here. Everything's nice and clean. Well, yeah, in a fantasy world. The reality is this is a hospital. This is where sick people come. 
This is where sick people get better. See, you may come in sick, but you won't stay sick long. You keep coming here, just like in a hospital. You don't stay in the hospital forever. Eventually, you get better. You keep coming here, you're going to get better. You're going to get better. The Lord will, will patch you up, and he'll heal you up, and you begin to feel better. A good doctor does not refuse care to anyone, regardless of race, creed, or affiliation. That's what Jesus said. Hey, I'm, I'm a physician, man. Anybody that's sick that wants help, I'm going to help them. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you have sat down with a table of sinners? Right smack dab in the middle of them. When's the last time? If Jesus was comfortable with it, then we need to learn to be as well. See, you can love someone and disagree strongly with their lifestyle, both at the same time. Let me say that again. You can love someone and disagree with their lifestyle, both at the same time. Now, I got to be honest with you, that's hard for me. This is something I got to continually remind myself. Why, you say? Because there's something in me, something broken, some wrong thinking that thinks that if I am cordial, to people that are living a lifestyle that's completely unbiblical, that's completely against what God wants for them. If I'm cordial, if I'm friendly with them, they're going to think that how they're living is not that bad. Well, Doug doesn't. He seems to be nice to me. He seems to be okay with me. He must not think that my lifestyle is so bad. That, that's what I think. And basically, I'm endorsing their lifestyle. And I, I, there's something in me that says I need to every now and then kind of sneer at them kind of shake my head in disgust at them, just kind of let them know I'm with you, but I really hate your lifestyle. There's something in me that's broken that way. And I guess what it is is that I just don't trust the Holy Spirit that he's the convictor of sin, that I have to be the convictor of sin. And, and rather than just what Jesus said, hey, love people, love men. They'll know you by your love that you have one for another. So that, that's my issue that I have to work with. Now, you're going to have a lot of opportunities coming up. You got Halloween coming up. You got Thanksgiving coming up. You got Christmas coming up. You're going to have a chance to spend a lot of time with sinners because a lot of those folks are in your family, right? You might be the only Christian in your family. And you might be the person they turn to is, hey, can you say a prayer? And okay, everybody put down your beers. We're going to pray here for a second. <laughs> right? <clears throat> you know, turn the TV off. Stop fighting with the wife. We're going to pray here real fast. But you, you let your light shine over there, okay? Jesus did it. You can do it too. Here's the third person I'm going to look at, people I'll look at and, and talk about their faith. And these are people you probably have, probably have not heard of. Dionysius and Damaris. Dionysius and Damaris, they had the faith of the uninformed. The faith of the uninformed. The Apostle Paul had a rhythm to his life. He would start a church. And he would stay there long enough to get leaders in place. And then once he felt like the church could stand on its own without him, he would move on. And then he would start another church and stay there long enough to get it going. And then he would go on and start another church. And then also, too, part of his missionary uh, responsibilities is he would go back and visit those churches that he started. How's it doing? Everything good? Oh, I need to stay a little longer. They got a thing going on here, and I need to kind of hang out here. So we start churches and go check on churches. Well, he's has a layover from, from his missionary itinerary, and he found himself in Athens, Greece. And there he is in Athens, and he's walking around, and he's looking up, and he, as Bible says there in Acts 17, he's starting to get provoked. He's starting to get chapped. 
He's starting to get hot. Say, oh, my gosh. I cannot believe. They got a stinking calf up there, and that's their God. They got a bird up there saying, here, buy this, bow down, where's the bird? What's the matter with these people? And he's frustrated. And he gets in a conversation with someone about the true God, and the guy says, hey, you need to come tomorrow to the Areopagus. This is open square, this open forum, and you can share your views. And Paul says, okay, I'll be there. And we pick up the story of Paul there in verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And I said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. He's not talking about <laughs> that grope. He's talking about this word in the Greek that means to brush up against. What he's saying there is that there's something within man, kind, men and women that knows that there's a God. Every person knows that there's a God. There's something in them. Why do I know that? Because it says that in Romans, that that which is evident about God is made known to them, for God made it evident. There's something within every single person that knows deep down in their being that there's something bigger out there. There's a creator. This didn't just happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know who he is. I don't know the form of this person, but I do know there's an intelligent designer out there. And Paul says that if somebody comes to that place and they are sincere and they reach out towards this person, say, I want to know this creator, even though they might not even know what they're reaching for, but if they reach out and just, just barely touch, Paul says, God will find them. God will find them. You say, well, how will he find them? Well, primarily missionaries. Primarily us sharing the gospel. But God's not limited just by, by humans. He can use angels. We know it says that angels can take human form. There could be angels in some of these places that, that missionaries aren't there sharing the gospel. Angels don't even have to take human form to be used. We see in the uh, last part of the book of Revelation, during the three and a half year of the great tribulation here on earth, that there's this angel flying around the heavens proclaiming the eternal gospel. Just flying around. God could have right now in the jungles of the Amazon, some angel flying through the trees saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Give your life to Jesus. He's what you're looking for. It could happen. Paul preached a sermon to people who were looking for God in all the wrong places. Well, what was the result? Was there any fruit? Well, yeah, there was. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. <clears throat> but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some people did believe. I believe the quote from philosopher and Catholic theologian Blaine Pasquale 
The paraphrase of his quote is this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and woman which cannot be filled with any created thing, but only by God the creator made known by Jesus Christ. I believe that. I believe there's a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. There's something in us that knows that there's a God. There's something in our heart that is just, just sucking things in saying, fill me, fill me, fill me. It, it's, it's, it's wanting to be filled with the Lord, but because of sin, because of deception of the enemy, we try to fill it with all kinds of other stuff. And it doesn't fit, and we keep trying to fill it. We keep trying to fill it. And, and oftentimes, the more you try to fill it with the wrong things, the emptier you get. And you find yourself kind of wandering around in life. And as I look back at my life, that's where I was as a 19-year-old on the campus of Bakersfield College. My partying had hit its, its a, a peak level. I mean, I was just every single day just partying and, and lots of dope, lots of drinking, and, and lots of just crazy stuff. And as I walked across the campus one day, uh, I was approached by a guy who said, Doug, and I recognized him immediately. It was a former Little League teammate. I'm talking eight, nine-year-old uh, time out at North of the River when I played out there here in Bakersfield. And I remember two things about this kid. One, he was the worst player on the team. Horrible baseball player. Secondly, he was the nicest kid on the team. Such a polite kid, such a shy kid, just a, one of those mild-mannered, just good kids. And, and I think it was because of that, when he said, hey, Doug, can I talk to you for a second? Rather than me, you know, thinking, oh, he's going to try to sell me something or talk about God. There's a bunch of people on the campus in those days that would, that would witness to you. Because I respected him, he was such a nice guy, I listened to him. And he shared with me Jesus. He shared the gospel with me. And he left me with a little gospel track. If you're new to the faith, those are little pamphlets that, that uh, were very popular back in the 70s and 80s that would share uh, the plan of salvation. And then at the end of those tracks, it had a prayer. If you'd like to receive Jesus, pray this prayer. And, and he handed me a track. Now, I cannot remember, be honest with you, if, if I read the track, I don't really know the impact that it had on me. I, I do remember I didn't immediately become a Christian, but it was not just a few months later in my first year of pro baseball that I did receive the Lord. So that pamphlet, that track could have been the seed that God used uh, for my salvation. I was sharing this story in our church in Vegas. I actually, before I shared that, in my Bible study that I do with some guys on Tuesday. And one of the guys said, Doug, he says, hey, I actually got saved from a track. And he said that somebody shared the track with him. He went home, read it, and then again, at the end of that track, if you'd like to receive the Lord, pray. He says, I prayed that prayer. I became a Christian all alone by, by reading the prayer of how to receive the Lord off a gospel track. And when he said that, I said, oh, man, is God saying something? Are the tracks supposed to make a reappearance? Are we supposed to bring them out of the closet? And so I ordered a 1,000 gospel tracks, and I, I made them available to the Vegas church last weekend and said, hey, grab some if you want and take them with you. Hand them out whenever God uh, wants you to hand them out. We have, uh, Vicky and I have a, a couple friends of ours in the Vegas church. He's a retired casino executive, new Christian. And uh, we <clears throat> spent some time with him at lunch. And his wife is a, just a voracious witness for the Lord. And whenever they pay the bill or we pay the bill, whoever pays the bill, she will take a gospel track and she will tuck it into the little sleeve where you put your credit card. And she writes a little personal note on there and she leaves a track with every uh, bill that she pays. And so uh, she's just very, very aggressive. And who knows, who knows 
How many people will be saved by things like that? Who knows? Only heaven will reveal the fruit of the ministry that we had for the many years that we uh, had a booth at the porn convention. And I always feel a need here. Let me explain. If you're new here, let me explain so you don't think we're a cult. Years ago, Pastor Ron had a heart when they, we started the church in Vegas. He says, man, there's such a porn industry over here. There's so much sex over here in this city. He's like, I, I got a heart for these people. I want to minister to them. And they have a big annual, it's called the adult, whatever, whatever. We call it the porn convention. Uh, and so they have this big porn convention every year. And he said, let's go minister to these people. And so we got some people that had a heart for it. And we went down there. But I, it was always kind of awkward to me because, first of all, we, we didn't go inside. We just kind of hang out in the halls as, as people were kind of coming out. And I kind of felt like a lot of the other people there that were, you know, they were into the porn, but too cheap to buy a ticket to get in. I kind of felt like we're like them, like, open the door. I want to get a look real fast. And I, it just felt weird to me, that vibe. And plus, the ministry was you'd have to kind of walk up to people. Hey, man, yeah, uh, you know, how was it in there? Uh, can I talk to you about God? So Pastor Ron talking, I said, hey, why don't we do this? I said, Let's just go in. What? Yeah, let's get a booth. You want to get a booth? I'll do it if you'll do it. I'll do it. So <clears throat> we got a booth. And we had a booth in the porn convention. It was called Naked Truth. And we were right between the person, the, the spanking booth where people get spankings there. And I'm not going to tell you it was on this side. <laughs> and, and we would set it up. And it was so funny because we had on the table, we had Bibles. We had Christian books on marriage on addiction. Uh, we had uh, CDs, worship music CDs. We had teaching DVDs. And uh, we had a prayer board where you could write prayer requests and people would write prayer requests on there. Pray for my mom. She has cancer. And people come up and we were, we stood like a sore thumb and they kind of come up to us and, you know, they, you guys aren't different. Nobody's getting spanked in this booth. What are you, what are you guys? And they look at us and they look at our sign. They look at us, look at our material. And what are you? We're a church. Your church, yeah, we, we're a church here in town in Bakersfield. We, we just have a heart for people. A lot of these things have been found helpful by our people. We think they'd be helpful for you. It's all free. Take whatever you want. Oh, okay. And so we got into great conversations with people, conversation with people you would never have had a chance to had had you not been there at the porn convention. But it was also was fun, and, and we'd play with some people sometimes. There'd be occasional guys that come up there, and they'd take a look around. Hey, what do you got here? Yeah, it's all free. It's free, huh? They'd take a, like a DVD thing. Oh, man, is it free? I get to look. Oh, free? Because most of everything else is charged for there. And he'd grab one and say, oh, boo, you picked a good one. Man, watch that when you get home. Woo, you got a hot one. Woo, that's a good, that's a good one right there. Man. I wish I could have been there when he popped in. Nurse Pastor Ron saying, you need Jesus Christ. <laughs> that would have been awesome. But see, only heaven will know the impact of that. Only heaven will know. We don't know how many people. Sometimes we get a glimpse. I got a glimpse, I think it was 1985 again. I was in Tucson, Arizona. We were playing uh, on the road down there. And I had a real rarity. I had my own room. Typically, you have a roommate, but somehow it didn't 
the number. I had my own room for that road trip. And uh, baseball players, you know, we play night games. We didn't get done until 10 o'clock. By the time you eat, it's 11. By the time you get back to the hotel, it's 11.30. By the time you unwind, it's 2, 3, 4 in the morning. You're just night owls. And so I heard a knock on my door about 2 in the morning, and it was a teammate that I never would imagine would have been knocking at my door because this I, I was a Christian, and this guy was a partier, and this guy was just, just, you know, never went to a, a chapel church service we had. But there he is and say, hey, Doug, can I talk with you? Sure. Come on in. I could tell when he came in, his lips were quivering. And he sat down and he told me, he said, I just got a phone call from my mom. He said, they caught my dad. They caught him cross-dressing. They caught him dressed up like a woman. I, my mom was crying. She didn't know what to do. Here I am. I think, I think you live in Ohio. I'm miles away. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, Doug. So I was able to kind of talk with him and, and pray with him. I didn't lead him to the Lord that day. That's not what he came for. That's not what he's looking for. But I just thought, <clears throat> I thought afterwards, I said, this guy, in a time of crisis, he came looking for me. And really what it was, he came looking for God in me. He knew that there was something there. He knew that, that, that uh, there was something valid, that I would listen, that I might have some perspective. And see, there are people that watching you, you don't know who they are. You, you won't get a glimpse of it, but I promise you, people are watching you. They're looking at you. Trust that your, your lifestyle and your words and your life make a difference in people's life. And then lastly, I want to talk about Paul. And I'm calling Paul's faith the faith of the unwilling. The faith of the unwilling. Before there was Paul, there was Saul. Before he was a great apostle for God, he was a great enemy of God. Saul hated Christians. He thought they were a cult. He thought they were trying to come against the law of Moses and all the sacred traditions that they would follow for thousands of years. And he set out to destroy them. He had letters of authority from the Jewish leaders. And here he is on the road going, getting ready to, to attack more Christians. And he had an experience, an encounter with the Lord. We read about it in verse 12 of Acts 26. Paul here, as he's sharing his testimony to this king, uh, in Acts 26, says, Well, so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, <clears throat> rescuing you from the Jewish people and from Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul had a call in his life, and he says, I found myself kicking against, and he uses the term kicking against the goads. The goad being the eight-foot instrument of shepherds that was used, that had a pointed end, was used to get obstinate, stubborn sheep to go the direction the shepherd wanted them to go. And certain sheep were stubborn. 
certain sheep wouldn't go the right direction, and so he would have to poke and, and prod and, and use that instrument to say, you're kicking, you're going against this thing. You keep wanting to go this way, but I'm going to make it painful for you to go this way. Poke, poke. And hopefully in turn of getting that sheep to turn around and go the right direction. Now, I believe, I do believe that this wasn't the first time that Jesus revealed his plans for Paul on the road to Damascus. I think he'd been talking to him for years, possibly at least months ahead of time, telling him, saying, Paul, this is not right. Paul, this is the new way. Paul, I want you to be in my team. Paul, you should not be doing this. These men and women love God. It's just a different way than you're used to. Paul, don't do this because he says it's hard to kick against the goads. I think he had been saying this is, this is not the first goad that you've come up against. I've been talking to you for, for years of doing that. And finally, it took a being knocked off your high horse experience for Paul to finally say, I get it. Now, because God has a plan for your life, because he wants to, to have your life go a certain direction, he will also goad you. He'll also poke you. He will make your life difficult sometimes. He will make your life uncomfortable sometimes. He'll remove the blessings from your life. Why? To try to get your attention, saying you're going down the wrong path here. I, I don't, this is destructive. This is harmful. This isn't good for you. So I'm going to allow some pain. I'm going to cause some pain to try to get you to make a different turn or something better out there. I got, I got another path for you. And maybe some of you listening here today, you have bruised toes from kicking against what God wants for you. You've been fighting it. You've been kicking against it. But let me tell you, God is big and his love is stubborn. My wife had an encounter with my son that kind of illustrates this. Uh, when Seth was just five years old here when we were living in Bakersfield, she was in a trophy shop here in town getting trophies for my daughter's softball team and told Seth, a little five-year-old Seth, do not touch anything inside here. He'd been a stinker that week. Do not touch anything. All right, mommy. Not paying attention. Goes in there. She's paying for the trophies. And all of a sudden behind her here, it's this crash of trophies. And sure enough, what's Seth doing? He grabbed a trophy, knocked another one over. And Vicky told him, you, mister, are getting a spanking when you get home. You have not been listening to mommy. No, my, no, you're getting the spanking. And took him home and took him in the bedroom and gave him a spanking. And she was walking out. And all of a sudden, she just felt something behind her. And that little farmer came up and pushed her. <laughs> Turn around there, mister, and went in there and gave him a couple more. Walked out again. You little, and, and Vicky, this two or three times. And Vicky says, I knew it was the voice of God. I felt in my spirit the Lord say, you've got to win this. This is crucial right now. This is the okay corral moment for you with your son. If you don't beat him, he's going to beat you. And she, she's, all of a sudden she said, I felt this strength. I felt this empowerment from God. And I don't know how many more times, but finally, she stay in that bed. And finally he stayed there. And she said, that was a real turning point. I see parents sometimes, little five-year-old Johnny, and, you know, go do that. No, you can't make me. <laughs> and oh, he's, he's just a little ornery stinker. I don't think it's funny when they're five. I don't think it's funny at all. I think Johnny's a brat. I think Johnny needs to learn something. I think if you don't stop Johnny at five, when Johnny gets 15, it's not funny at all when Johnny says, what are you gonna do, mom? What are you gonna do, huh, huh? That will happen.
If you lose him at five, you'll, you won't have him when he's 15 and your, your upbringing, your life, home life will be miserable. It'll be living hell. And Vicki said, I, I knew I had to win this thing right here. And let me just tell you, God loves you enough to wear you down and to spank you and to do what he has to do. Why? Because he loves you. Now, I end with this. Let me tell you the story and ending of Marianne Bird. Marianne Bird was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1928. Poor little thing. She was born with a severe cleft palate. It required 17 surgeries. Left her with a severe speech impediment that would be made fun of at school. She wasn't even able to drink out of a drinking fountain properly. She would drink and she couldn't swallow properly. So when she would get there, the water kind of dribbled down her chin. And she, just one more reason for the kids to laugh at her. To top that, she was deaf in one ear. As one of the worst days of the school year was approaching for little Mary Ann Bird, <clears throat> it became one of the better days. It became a turning point in her life. See, in those days, how they would test your hearing is what they would call the whisper test. They would uh, have the teacher of your class uh, have you sit in a chair, and they would tell you, cover your left ear. So you'd cover your, your left ear, and then they would whisper something into your right ear. Things like, I like your brown shoes. That is such a pretty red dress. And then you would have to tell the teacher, what did I just say? And you'd have to repeat back. And if you repeat back what the teacher said, then, okay, you can hear in that ear. Then they'd have you cover the other ear, and they'd do the same thing. That's how they checked your hearing back in the day, the whisper test. Well, Marianne Bird hated it because she was deaf in one ear. Just one more reason for the kids to laugh when she couldn't repeat what the teacher said. <clears throat> so Marianne would cheat. Instead of covering her ear, her good ear, she would cup it. So as the teacher whispered in her bed ear, she's hoping she could hear it. Then she would, she would be able to, to speak back to her. Marianne Bird says later in life, this teacher had to be used of God. God had to put these seven words in this teacher's heart. Dear Miss Leonard, those teachers, that teacher that all the students would hope the next year that they would get, awesome teacher, Miss Leonard. Miss Leonard bent down and whispered in little Marianne Bird's ear seven words that forever changed this little girl's life. She said, I wish that you were my little girl. And Marianne Bird says, when she said that, something broken me in a good way. All of the insecurities, all the feelings of unworthiness, all the feelings of inadequacy, something changed and I felt this strength. I felt this hope. I felt this encouragement and just said from that day on, I never viewed myself the same way. And Marianne Bird went on to have a very, very successful life all because of seven words whispered into her ear by a teacher. And you might be saying, Doug, why are you talking about God's love on a sermon on faith? What's the connection? Well, here, here it is. I believe that when you become convinced that God not only loves you, which he does, and maybe that doesn't do it for all of you. I know God loves me. That's his job. God has to love. That's, that's in his job requirement for being God. You got to love people. But when you come to understand that not only does God love you, but he likes you. God actually likes you. He does. 
He likes you. He made you. Well, I'm kind of weird. Well, God made you kind of weird. He needed a weird person. I, man, I, I got a bad temper. God needed someone with some passion. Now, he'll work on your temper, but he, he likes people with passion. I, I'm, I'm quiet, man. Everybody talks. I don't like to God made you quiet. There's a reason that you're quiet. You're not a mistake. God likes you that way. I got a bunch of stuff wrong with me. Yeah, you, we all got stuff broken that God's fixing. But God made you. He likes you. Not only does he love you, he likes you. And when you become convinced of that, stepping out in faith, stepping out into the great unknown becomes easier knowing that a God who loves you, a God who likes you, is calling you out. You're not as fearful. It gives you hope. It gives you confidence. You can trust that where he, what he's calling you to will be in your best interest. There's a direct correlation between how you view God and how you believe he views you versus stepping out in faith. Now, let me end with this. There are some here today that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ for one reason or another. Today, you have the opportunity to take a step into faith, to give your life to God, not knowing what that looks like. See, the Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is real, but you can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. You can't hear it with the, with the senses that we have here, but it's something very, very real. And so you that, who don't know the Lord, you have that chance today. But also, some of you who do know the Lord, you know him. You're born again, but you have not jumped in with both feet completely to the Lord. Why? Because there's some fear there. There's something that, that you can't trust God with. You're afraid to give yourself completely to him. And I hope that something has resonated with you today. Something has given you hope that today is the day that you completely surrender to Jesus Christ. You not only make him Savior, but you make him Lord. And I'm going to pray and give you that opportunity today. So please bow your heads. Father, I pray for anybody here, Lord, who has never given their life to you, that today they'll say, I want to receive Jesus Christ. I want his forgiveness. I want to be born again. I pray that they would just give their life to you as they confess their sin and as they ask you to be their Lord. I pray for people here, Lord, today, God, that have been holding out, been holding off, have been holding back for one reason or another, that today is the day they'll say, I'm going for it. I'm jumping in with both feet. I'm jumping in. I'm letting go. I don't know what's out there. I don't know what this will mean, but I know I don't want to live this way any longer. And if that's you, if you fit in any one of those two categories today, I want to say a prayer for you. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the strength to follow through with that commitment today. That he'll, he'll, the Spirit's strength will match up with your will and there'll be this just birth that'll take place and you'll have strength to do something that you previously didn't have strength to do. And if, if you want to get in on this and you're ready to take a, a deeper step of faith, then let me know what I'm praying for. Just raise your hand. I'm just going to pray over you. Just raise your hand. Let me see who I'm praying for today. You're stepping into new levels of faith. You're giving yourself completely over to the Lord, completely today. No more holding back. Let, let me see who, who I'm praying for today. How do you know if I'm talking to you, your heart's beating fast right now? Your palms are sweaty. Your, your stomach's churning. That's that. You know, you know the Lord's talking to you. He's been talking to you the whole sermon. Do it today. Do it today. Do it today. All right, Father, those that have their hands raised right now, Lord, right now, 
I pray, fill them with the Holy Spirit. God, give them strength to carry through in what they are deciding in their heart today, God. God, fill them right now. Give them strength. Give them power. Break whatever's holding them back from giving themselves completely over to you. And God, I pray that when they come back to church next Sunday, they will be different people, God. Completely different people, God. Do that, Lord, for these folks that are responding today. And for the rest of the folks, God, I pray the blessing of God upon them. I pray the blessing of God upon their health. I pray the blessing of God upon their finances. I pray the blessing of God upon their families, Lord. I pray for those blessings upon them. We ask all of this. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message has ministered to your heart. If you don't already have a church you call home, we invite you to join us at Valley Bible Fellowship for worship, Bible study, fellowship, and more. We're at 2300 East Brundage Lane in Bakersfield, California, near Mount Vernon and Freeway 58. Reach us by phone at 661-325-2251 or visit our website at vbf.org. Here is our